This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. It is the year 2021 and this is the program Be Real. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We're thrilled to be back in your ears at the start of a new year, celebrating a fantastic and depthful and highly varied body of work. We're talking about film adaptations of books by the late John le Carre, uh, a British novelist who worked in the espionage genre throughout the latter half of the of the twentieth century. He passed away back in mid December the author of such books as Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Little Drummer Girl, and about, what, 25 more, Noah? Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to focus on six films today. Noah, you want to rattle them off real quick? So today we're talking about The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, 1965, Deadly Affair from 67, then we jump to 1990 with The Russia House, uh, then 2001's Taylor of Panama, and then 2005's The Constant Gardener, and 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. So forgive us if your favorite adaptation is missing. Or write to us. Tell us what you like about it. But these are the six that we were most curious to watch and could could wrap our heads around um, on today's episode. Um, Noah, quick Le primer for people um i said he was a spy novelist um what do you make of him as a writer yeah i mean he's sort of the high end of espionage fiction uh you know of the 60s going up until he had one come out just a few years ago um, right agent running in the field uh which references things like donald trump and brexit so he was very much on the forefront of you know, even contemporary politics and geopolitics. Maybe we could talk about what it's real quick, like what it's like to read one of his books and how that sort of transfers or, or doesn't to film. Um, you know, he's not a very showy writer, but he's like a deeply observant one, I would say. For sure. And I think that what makes him kind of literary and what's kind of funny about all these movies is there's very little like main action sequence in any of these. Like there's no real, like there's no Mexican standoffs in this and there's no real car chases. Uh, some of the movies try to like flub it a little bit, but at it's at their heart, all of his stories are really about the morality and ethics of being a spy and what espionage means uh, sort of in a, you know, a rhetorical sense, uh, which I think makes it's, it's funny that he's been so adapted over the years because it makes 
the kind of a a challenge for you know what a movie like this can look like and i think the better movies know that they need to enlist actors and creatives who like get that they're not making a james bond movie they're making very much like an adults considered drama yeah the commercial and popular ceiling for these adaptations as we see is like 80 million dollars and one acting oscar um and those are the most successful ones like you you almost can't get more successful than that with licore because because then otherwise you would be doing something that was more um widely popular and just antithetical to like what he's up to in these books which i often find are like they're interesting because, you know, when you compare them to other spy fiction, they're often rightly tagged with being more realistic, with being more drab and droll, and you're in a world of, of, of bureaucrats and which bureaucrats have a conscience and which ones don't. Um, but he himself has described what he does in his writing as a dream world of sorts. And I think when you're two thirds of the way into one of his novels, that feeling actually carries water because you kind of wake up much like a Licare protagonist and realize that you're in a maze that you miss the entrance and there may not even be an exit. Right. Yeah. You didn't know that you'd stepped into it when you had a cup of coffee with that fucking guy from the last scene. One of the ways we could start but also wrap up this portion of just talking about John le Carré is like his experience being a spy, which we haven't said yet is that he worked right, in right, British right. intelligence in the fifties and sixties. So there is a deep, deep cynicism about what that means geopolitically throughout the cold war. And that sort of leads to some of the humor by way of cynicism, sometimes bordering on nihilism. But then you just have that contradiction of like the kind of people who were recruited as spies, according to uh, David Cornwell, who by the way, never answered to the name John le Carré. He never called himself that outside of publishing. Um, but Cornwell would talk about, like, you know, spies were people who were recruited from, uh, you know, the fringes of society and were asked to take on the roles and manners of, you know, British bureaucrats. So they're people who know that they're speaking a language, even when the language they're speaking seems to be in the form of the duty of their home country. And you're talking about a guy who um, both understands 20th century British culture at a certain level very, very well, and also just completely detests it. The kind of man who, say, could be offered a knighthood for his body of work and say, I absolutely don't want anything that would make it seem like the Empire was uh, endorsing what I've done. Yeah, well, there's something so funny about interacting with six of these movies back to back to back that you kind of get a sense that, you know, he sees the intelligence industry just as any other capitalist-based industry of the Western world. And there's such a funny conflict between, you know, the bigger questions that I think we're still dealing with today that, like, you know, the more you move towards communism and socialism, like some of the ideas are appealing. But And then on capitalism, you have this backbreaking, you know, system in place where only a few people succeed and everybody else gets fucked. Mm -hmm. But there's just so much rampant corruption on both sides of it. It's the human factor here that is keeping us from achieving the thing we want. And how, f like, frail, like you know, men's morality is that like, I mean, it's, there's no, there's nothing different right now to me. Like 
the uh, LaCure character doing their thing in their best interest or whatever. And then like, you know, opening up the New York Times in January of 2021 and being like, oh, look at these fucking guys just like doing their thing because they think in that moment that's that's the thing they should be doing. Uh, can we jump in? Do you want to go chronological in terms of movie or chronological in terms of history? What was, what do you think is the way to go here? Not alphabetical. <laughs> no, certainly not autobiographical. What would you like to do, my friend? I would like to go chronologically. From the movie's release? Yes. I can do that. Um, let's say real fast that we are always quite happy to be part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find shows like The Playlist Podcast, The Fourth Wall, and The Discourse. Find the feed wherever you get your shows, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And leave us a nice rating if you enjoy the shows. We always appreciate that. Thank you, folks. 1965. The spy who came in from the cold. Uh, British agent Alec Lemus, played by Richard Burton, refuses to come in from the Cold War during the 1960s, choosing to face another mission, which may prove to be his final one. Mm, oh my. Some really good like 1965 camera work where you know we're thrust in in this cold open at the Berlin Wall. And Richard Burton, looking like absolute dog shit, kind of like <laughs> stumbles out of this like yeah. sort of back room to survey the literal line between the east and west to see if his agent's going to like cross over and make it. And he, you know, people are kind of doubting whether he's going to show up at all. Long story short, he ends up being gunned down before he can make it to the to the west. And so the slap on the wrist that Lemus gets being flown back to London and being charged with pretending to be like an embittered, drunken, uh, you know, counterintelligence spy who's willing to sell his knowledge for to the highest bidder. Um, and Lemus is like, hell, I'm half in the bag already. If this right. is what you want me to do for a couple of months to get recruited by the KGB, I'm in. And so, yeah, he makes himself kind of as, as base as possible, gets into some fist fights, meets a girl, scares her a little bit, but ultimately like ends on okay terms with her only to be approached by this guy willing to maybe help him out uh, and getting back on his feet after losing his government job. But it turns out... This person is just like the first in a long line of individuals interested in leveraging his information from his job uh, to his Russian counterpart. So let's talk about this twist because it's one of the first examples and I, pro I think one of the best in the films we watched today of this sensation you have as a Le reader or a film watcher of you also exist on the chain of intelligence. Um, yes. And things are deliberately kept from you because you don't need to know that right now. And the first, the first twist, because you don't see the the conference explicitly where the, the control tells Lemus like, you need to go get drunk and become and get it, you know, seem fired and become approachable by Eastern agents. And so there's like ten minutes slash I don't know twenty pages where you are kind of like, what's happening here? But it's, it's truly, it's, I think it's perfectly played to keep you on the chain just long enough for an, oh, that's what's happening. 
each movie has to deal with this moment where it's just two guys sitting in a room with infinite cigarettes uh, and like one really bright bulb. And what are they going to talk about? How are you going to shoot that scene? Like, how are you, like, how many cards are you going to be able to see? Um, And I think this one, for the most part, keeps it pretty lively. Like, they make the sound judgment and the book-led judgment to take them outside uh, and have these, like, great walks. You know, this idea of we're so in the middle of nowhere that even if you ran in any direction, like, what good would that do you? Yeah, the on like the second level of his being fake turned by the KGB slash Abteilung, um, he <laughs> he's in he's in the Netherlands. He goes to the Hague, and you have this moment where Lemus just like looks out at the ocean and like realizes that he's in the shit, and he's going to the next. Like I, he's like I have no backup out here. Like we're just I'm staring into the intelligence abyss, as it were. Um, I love the, it's fascinating the way that you, these directors try to cinematize, um, what is, as we've said, not the liveliest, not the most cinema ready source material. No. Um, Martin Ritt, who directed this movie and who, um, made some big movies in the sixties and seventies, long hot summer and, uh, like Norma Ray. Um, he makes a brilliant decision to show how at every chain as Lemus goes further east and starts to meet uh, uh, Fiedler, who's like the second in command of the Abteilung and gets closer to Munt, who is this sort of, uh, you know, East German boogeyman type figure, an ex-Nazi who's like his nemesis. Um, At every link in the chain, the person he's passed off to treats the other person like absolute shit. They're just like, you can go outside and fuck off forever. Like your chain is done. And that's such a great way of creating a rhythm to a book that otherwise doesn't is not big on rhythm. Right. I mean, it's very much like a hero's journey kind of narrative. Like here's the next room with the even more sinister person. Uh, and what's their tack going to be? And how do you like foil them to move on to the next level? Uh, but I think the drama's done well. And each sort of episode in this movie, like has a good beat to it. And I mean, I really think that comes from, sort of the master screenwriting of Paul Dean, who also did uh, Goldfinger and the original Murder on the Orient Express. You know, he gets how these episodes of these kind of thriller-adjacent things, like how they need to go, and when it's okay to just have a character do a poetic monologue that, like, gives you what you need to know of the story. I mean, Richard Burton is great. Nobody... Few people wear alcoholism as well as he does, sadly, on screen. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I love that the very first moment you see of him too, when he's on the job and allegedly important, he's you know he's lacing his own coffee, and you're like, well, this this won't be that hard of a <laughs> disguise for him no. to put on. Absolutely not. Yeah, and this is like Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. You know, this is like absolutely. Isn't it? Like, you said it was same year as Virginia Woolf. It's the year or maybe after. A year yeah. Before, okay. But it's like I mean, it's the same dude uh, yeah. as you saw in that with the same sort of boozy bravado, and he has like a really couple good monologues and a couple of good scenes to chew on too. 
the like climactic monologue is maybe one of the best Richard Burton monologues that there is. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? Yesterday I would have killed Munt, because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today he's evil and my friend. London needs him. They need him so that the great moronic masses you admire so much can sleep soundly in their flea-bitten beds again. They need him for the safety of ordinary, crummy people like you. That monologue is essentially the thesis of early Le Carre, and Cornwell was working in intelligence in Germany at the time. I mean, he, he basically blew, essentially had his, his agency blow his cover in his career because this book became such a sensation. Um, so, I mean, never was he closer to understanding what it was like to be a cog in a machine and to have a character who just doesn't know how important or not important he is. That's where a lot of the intrigue comes from here. And the audience really not knowing either, uh, Mm -hmm. which is an intriguing thing. You know, I think as a storyteller, um, Le Carre has this ability to not only like introduce you to characters or situations you didn't know existed, but just another level of the world that you didn't realize existed. Um, and I think this whole movie is kind of a, you know, mirror trick of showing you just how far, just what step in this longer narrative. We're in like step nine of a 10-year thing by the end of this thing, yeah. uh, by the end of this narrative. Uh, and just knowing your place in it is kind of a, I don't know, a contemporary feeling that I got from this movie that's 60 years old. Mm-hmm. And of mm-hmm. course, I think all of these movies have the female character who steps into the mess. (laughs) He often makes it very, very clear that the women are better people. They are often the humans in the stories with actual convictions. Um, And that's a thing that comes up over and over again. Like uh, Nan, who is the, is the, Lemus's girlfriend in this book. Um, and Katya. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they believe no, in I, stuff. All these movies have them leveled to them where it's here are a series of men who are ashamed about who they are to women. Mm-hmm. And so they create these sort of alternate personas for themselves. And Lemus is kind of the the blueprint for this. Uh, so he meets a woman at this library that he's working at, you know, as he destroys himself, um, played by Claire Bloom, uh, and develops what is adjacent to an adult relationship in that here's a person who's willing to commit to me and I'm just, you know, my long game is my job here. And as much as he has conviction when he says to control, like, don't make a file on her, like, she's not in this. Like, she ultimately becomes the, you know, the linchpin for the central reveal. But then again, you know, because she got involved, the thing worked out. 
that's also a Lucre thing. It's like usually the women, with whether they control it or not, are the answer to the thing. Um, but also kind of a, you know, a dated trope. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there are no... There are no women agents in any of these, I don't think. No. I mean, thankfully, there's no money penny, uh, and no. no one is like a... There are no Lucre girls. No, <laughs> <laughs> so there are, but it's not the same thing. That's hilarious. Can you imagine a Lucre, like girl calendar, and it's just like uh, librarians and bureaucrats and... People. And Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold. <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold. It should be sad. Oh, man. Um, can we tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then rate The Spy Who Came In From The Cold? On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. What do you think, Noah? Well, let me ask you this, because this is a question we're going to have to address with all of these movies. Is that, is it a little bit boring? Licoré is not boring to read. You have to find a way to create tension in something that is not, like, you know, that does not have a churning plot to it. And this is one of the movies that's able to do it by having that almost, like, video game logic of, like, when are we going to fight Munt? (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah, but there's no, you know, like we said at the top, there's no exploding car chase machine gun going off in this. But it's a movie in a genre populated with scenes like that. So if you're going in with that kind of expectation, uh, it's it's not what you're going to – it doesn't fall maybe into quintessential entertaining movie territory. No, yeah, I think this category is interesting for the ratings, but it just so happens that I think we're starting with the one that is unimpeachably good good and is a really tremendous movie. Also because it's it's finding that sneaky way to insert movie star charm. Like even as Richard Burton, as you said, like just looks like he's dying, he's still Richard Burton. So he's able to be like, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing the drabness and it's credible, but I'm also a movie star doing self-destructive drabness it's able to hit in those both two kind of irreconcilable zones this one is an unquestionable good good for me i think it's good good yeah this is a prime example of what i want to call trench it's maybe like a little good bad come on if you're saying this is good good, bad where the fuck are we going (laughs) we're going down are we going to six good bads (laughs) oh yeah it may just be six good bads that's funny (laughs) Deadly Affair, 1967, directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, 
so this is an adaptation of Licorice's first novel, Call for the Dead. Um, a British agent sets out to uncover the hidden facts behind a British government employee's suicide. So this movie also starts with a, you know, fun cold open, uh, James Mathan hanging out in London meets up with this guy and he's like, Hey guy, uh, you know, somebody wrote us a letter that says you're a Russian asset and we just gave you that big promotion like a year ago. Like, was that, was that our bad? Like, are you, a Russian asset. And the guy's like, definitely not. And people go along with, go on with their lives. Unfortunately in the morning, that guy, it's revealed that that guy's killed himself. And then James Mason feels really shitty about it (laughs) for two hours. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Mason plays Charles Dobbs, who is George Smiley in the book. It's just that the, is it MGM didn't have the rights to it. Um, That's right. Um, and so he's given this other name, but he takes on a lot of these these Smiley properties. And Smiley's a character that we, have, of course, have to talk about. It's Licorée's most famous character. He's this uh, sad but very good at his job, um, uh, what, MI6 operative in his 50s. Um, in most of these books, uh, he's cheated on by his Oh, his he's wife, cucked for sure. Fairly rampantly, yes. Um but it, he is a fascinating character, and to hear Lecure describe it, like George Smiley is a character who settles him down. Uh, Cornwell says, I, I'm, I'm prone myself to actually to sort of big emotions, and Smiley is, is where I, you know, let those emotions go to die. Um, as we've seen in performances, most famously Alec Guinness in several of the BBC Right, and he's like, to, like considered to be, I guess in the UK, like when people think George Smiley, they think of the Alec Guinness TV character. They do, yeah. We'll have to um, watch those. I watched it. There's a lot of them on, are on YouTube if you want to check them out. Um, we just bit off as much as we could possibly chew with this one. Um, I watched some Alec Guinness clips. Alec Guinness is an acting genius. I mean, enjoy. But um, Mason is an interesting... Um, you know, Mason is a little more bloody of an actor than Alec Guinness, though. So it's interesting to see him try to pull this off. Mason gets pretty upset pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, he's not taking it super well that his wife has asked for an open marriage. Um, no. Don't tell me. Don't tell me who they are. I couldn't take it. <laughs> um, but essentially, that's his home life. And work life is piecing together whether or not this guy was murdered. Yeah. Um, this one is more like a murder mystery. This one definitely is a murder mystery and how it was written too. Um, it kind of has that same formula, however, you know, of the Le Carre girl, uh, the wife who's cucking him, uh, and the kind of five character, five acts, like I need to get through this guy to get to this guy to get to the big boss kind of thing. Yeah. Well, the the Licoré girl is is Elsa Fannin, the wife of the of the of the dead man played brilliantly. Simone uh Signoret, I hope I'm getting her name right, was a French movie star of the day. Um is so good in this movie. If anybody understands the the rhythms of the page and how to deliver uh a Licoré impassioned di- uh, monologue with no passion, it's her and she's She's pretty brilliant in, in, in sort of like lines like, um, oh, what does she say? Oh, she says to Smiley, 
you dropped a bomb from the sky. Don't come down here to look at all the blood and hear the screaming. Now go and kill Zontag. Keep the game alive. But don't think I'm on your side. I'm on nobody's side. I'm a battlefield for you, toy soldier. You can march over me. You can bomb me through holes. You can burn me. You can make me barren. But never pity me, Mr. Dobbs. Never. Never tell me you understand my feelings. Now go away and kill. This is Sidney Lumet, of course. I mean, one of the great American directors of all time. Um, Twelve Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, etc. But it's so interesting. I think... I think he's not that interested in the central mystery, and perhaps rightly so, because the actual, like, who is Sontag, who is the, the Eastern heavy who came to town, is, it's very obvious. Um, right. <laughs> and so Lumet kind of, like, occupies himself by being really interested in people's domestic turbulence, even insofar as to, like, there's a moment in this movie where um, uh, Roy Kinnear, who plays... Um, one of the parents in the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He's he, I think he's Baruch Salt's dad. Baruch, sweetheart. Exactly. He plays a mechanic who sort of accidentally like provided a car for the enemy, um, and the camera like follows away Roy Kinnear like drunkenly walking home his little daughter as they like talk about his doll. And it's like, all right, I mean, Lumet, much respect for being interested in these weird avenues, but like, this is not the movie. Right. It's kind of like the long goodbye or like the Chinatown treatment of source material that like really isn't that, you know, this movie kind of lacks the irony of like the bureaucrats like creating these dramas for themselves and is more about like, oh, I hope my best friend doesn't have sex with my wife. (laughs) Oh, he did. Oh, no. Yeah, um, Dieter. Yeah. There's Dieter is played by Maximilian Schnell, and oh, he is played outstandingly well. Maximilian Schell, I'm sorry, from Judgment Nuremberg. He's he's great in this movie. Or Taylioni's int- dad from Deep Impact. Oh my god! And uh, his introduction to the movie, as he like gets up from the chair, and there's that quick like zoom in on him is just like fuck they really knew how to introduce like a beautiful young actor in that time in hollywood didn't they yeah this guy's chin is about six inches away from his lower lip and they like spend on the whole panning (laughs) shot like going up his face it's incredible but the movie uh, is the movie is ruined also because like maximilian shell is he gets that grand entrance and he's third build and you're like, oh, who's the spy going to be? What about the super famous important character who hasn't been in the yeah, movie? It's the East German character who's fucking my wife. <laughs> yeah, Come it's on. pretty obvious that it's him. And then he doesn't seem that surprised that it's him either. No. I got to give Lumet another demerit too for this movie has a Quincy Jones score that it is desperate not to use. I know it wants to use it like in car moments and then like it sort of takes the wind out of the narrative to just not have the music of anywhere to go. It's very strange. Yeah. This is in Jones's amazing, like late sixties, early seventies, a super pioneering run. I mean, a working black composer in Hollywood was unheard of at the time in movies of this, of this scale. Um, 
but I mean, I don't know. Check out like the Hot Rock four years later if you want to hear a movie that like really knows how to use a Quincy Jones score. Lumet seems determined to be like in the scene where Shell and Mason and Anne like kind of have this like strange like chemistry of like oh Dieter's back we both love Dieter in our different ways don't we there's like this wood block underneath where I'm like what a sudden wood block cue <laughs> <laughs> but that's like the only time it matters but yeah this this movie like really wants to be about the like the collateral damage of these kinds of characters but because it's not focused enough on what's interesting about or urgent about the job itself. It like doesn't make a ton of sense. And what it ends up being is like James Mason going from scene to scene being like, Hey, what happened that time? And then being like one thing and then him talking to somebody else and going back to the original person being like, Hey, I, I heard that was like totally fabricated what you told me. And then the character being like, well, I had my reasons and they are thus. You hit it on the head. This there's, this movie has no urgency. Like you can't do a Licoré movie that's this complicated with this many moving pieces and just have no heat. There's no danger. There's no oh, yeah. momentum. The movie makes a grave error, I think, by having Harry Andrews plays this a retired police detective Mendel, who's kind of also serving British intelligence. Um, and sometimes he just goes off on his own to investigate for 25 minutes while George Smiley, or excuse me, Charles Dobbs, played by James Mason, <laughs> is just laid up in bed. And it's like, I don't, I don't think you can do an exciting detective movie where you just like switch detectives onto someone we don't care about. Yeah, kind of like the Bone Collector. That's brilliant. You yeah, this is the Bone podcast. Collector of Le Carre adaptations. <laughs> and if you really want to see Denzel act his way from a hospital bed the whole time. That's I mean, so funny. A movie of intrigue with no intrigue. And that's... Exactly. Deeply yeah. unfortunate. Um, also written by Paul Dean. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be winners, Paul. I would give this one uh, the first of what could be many good bads. Um, I think some of the performances are really good. I think like most Sidney Lumet movies, there is of course a baseline of quality and flashes of brilliance. Um, even in his, what this would be definitely lesser, lesser Lumet. Um, but yeah, you told me beforehand, like you're going to be so frustrated by what a B minus it is. <laughs> and that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. You said it was bad. Good, good, bad. I think it's bad good. You think it's watchable, think but there's... not technically good. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think technically the script, like, isn't there. Uh, and it has, like, moments of interest in it. And I think, like, the unhinged Mason performance is pretty good. Um, and there's this pretty interesting climactic um, – what is it? Richard the Third? What play Edward are they doing? Edward II. Edward the Second. That's just the kind of stuff, too, where, like – I shouldn't I shouldn't get mad, but clearly Lumet and Lacare are like in this like <laughs> lower tier Shakespeare, you will recognize this relationship between Gaveston and Edward II as being the sort of homoerotic betrayal that occurs between Dieter and Charles. And it's like, okay, I sort of recognize that. It's a lot of time watching Shakespeare though. Yeah. I mean, there's a fair amount of time watching What's-Her-Name get killed with one finger. I love that part. It's the single finger strangulation. She was killed by a single finger. 
<laughs> Whoopsie daisies. There is a scene earlier where they're like, we found out this person was killed by pressure on their, that one spot in the human body. You can't touch her. You die. Her thyroidal cartilage is totally shattered. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Uh, so you, I'm going good, bad. You're going bad, good. I'm going bad, good. All right. Uh, where do we go now? Russia House? Russia House. Our old adversary, the Americans. <laughs> Same year as Hunt for Red October. Incredible. This dude is just trying to defect. Let's just call it a day. Tell the people who you mean by this dude and synopsize Russia House, would you? I mean Sean Connery uh, and Russia House 1990. An expatriate British publisher unexpectedly finds himself working for British intelligence to investigate people in Russia. And more specifically, IMDb. Uh, <laughs> I remember this looking guy, at that synopsis and being like, Noah's going to have a fucking field day where it says investigate people in Russia. Yeah, no, he's he's trying to investigate Dante, a sort of sexy fiction writer that he met at like AWP Russia, uh, who also may be a top Russian scientist who's trying to tell the Americans that, in fact, Russians have not figured out nuclear technology, and it's all a big lie. Oh, removed the embassy? Or are you hijacking me? I'm from British Intelligence. Come and meet the others. Let's do some good. Let's have some fun. Now, isn't that jolly? Perhaps you can tell us what this letter's all about. Katerina Oliver. Katya? I don't know what Katya. Never flirted with one, never proposed to one, never even married one. So, she wrote you a letter signed, Your Loving K, and you tell me you don't know her. Oh, now you're getting it, old boy. <laughs> yeah, this movie's kind of a weird, a weird one. And it also finds Connery kind of at the, like, his awkward 50s where he, like, doesn't know that he's like a dashing older man yet. And he's like just sort of a schlubby, not James Bond. And the movie kind of doesn't know how to begin. Uh, it like wants to start after Connery's also like received this communique from this Russian editor who has this manuscript, but then it like flashes back while he's narrating it. And then eventually catches up to where we were to begin with. Anyway, it's not the best way to develop a character, no. uh, which is really like what this movie hangs on, like feeling for Connery, like as a frustrated leftist publisher from the UK who like can't make any money, but is independently wealthy enough to like keep doing his thing and keep going to cocktail parties. I mean, he's very much like an Alex Lemus type character. He's adjacent to people with big destructive ideas, but he is not the person with them. Uh, he's the person who could make money off of them potentially. Um, superficially he's fascinating i mean like as he's sort of like quizzed by the british intelligence um he's like very funny but he's also kind of a bullshit artist right i mean like right he just like wants to tell off the people who have different political beliefs than him and like when he goes to this like russian writer's retreat and ends up meeting the scientist accidentally he's monopolizing the conversation by being like 
I'm sure I understand Glashnost better than all of you. Um, and like, why? No, he doesn't. Like, he's just, he's being a showman. And he has this great line in the middle of the movie where he finally realizes that he has to take this mission where he says, you're a fool to use me. I let people down. And that's like, I was like, oh, great. Let's see this character really reckon with, uh, you know, performativeness and failure. And unfortunately, I feel like what we trend more toward is a very direct sense of romance that's a little ill-fitting. Really understanding these characters, these Central Corée characters, is understanding how tired and burnt out people get. It's a great uh, point. After giving up too much of, like, what makes them, like, quote-unquote straight um, in the professional sort of moral sense. Yeah, having a belief in following that. <laughs> exactly. But also what's interesting about this and maybe what's interesting about all the characters here is they're not always great spies. You know, like early on, Connery spends so much time just like badgering poor Michelle Pfeiffer about like, so what's your buddy's name? Like, who wrote this? You know, how can we keep this going? And he doesn't do the kind of Alec Lemus slow, methodical seduction. Right. So this one, we should talk about where it falls in time. It's really, I think, interesting to have somebody whose literary career depend on the Cold War go through this, like, if you go near the wall, you'll be shot, and then have it intersect 30 years later with Gorbachev. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a glasnost romance, as it were. Like, it's trying to find out what what ideals can be achieved and what remains the same in this new open Soviet Union. Um, and this is one of the first movies that it was the Schwarzenegger movie, Red Heat, which was the first movie to get to shoot in the Soviet Union in the late eighties. But this one is like primarily set there. And there are moments where it's just like, are you trying to get me to understand the architectural differences between Leningrad and Moscow, the Russia house? And I think it oh is. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> they have a really big budget for B roll on this one uh, yeah. and a lot of second unit stuff where it's like, Ooh, look at this helicopter shot of this cool building. I think it's indicative of one of the movie's problems, which is there is a sneaky romance to Licare stories, not like a, um, you know, romance of the heart or, uh, but of, of cities you, you can, it is undeniable that it is slightly romantic the way a spy can access a European or South Central American or city at any hour they want in any way they want. But this one takes it too far. It's a Branford Marcellus score with the, uh, with the, with the hammy coincidence that uh, this character, the Connery <laughs> character also plays the soprano saxophone. And it's just, it cre- this is the one that has a big tone problem to me. This movie is right. too romantic and too jazzy and too jaunty. Too jazzy? For- for a story, yes, that should be scarier. Right. No, I think the Chekhov's uh, soprano sax is really where this movie like, kind of commits the cardinal sin of being too cute without being too clever. Right. <laughs> I, this reference is lost on Noah because he, he's not a super fan of the show, but it has a real uh, Duke Silver vibe from uh ron swanson and parks and rec where he like sneaks away to like play jazz as an older man at a club where he's adored like that's what connery is getting away with here i don't know i think that michelle pfeiffer is trying so 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 hard to get that accent. i wish she was trying only so so hard and not three so's <laughs> 
Would you like to say anything about the Yanks real quick? The Americans? Oh, the supporting cast uh, is just so oversaturated with talent here that it almost makes it like not that interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have Roy Scheider from Jaws, of course. Um, and being one of the great movie stars of the late 70s. Sure. You're talking about J.T. Walsh? <laughs> ne- Nebom does not take any to the center mass in this one. J.T. Walsh just gets to dress up like a general and be in two scenes. Um, John Mahoney, uh, uh, the senior crane from Frasier. Um, Martin as in this again it's just like state department suit yes this is the movie that really sort of introduces audiences to the special relationship that they will talk about outright uh in the taylor of panama um but this one yeah i mean i think it doesn't know whether to be kind of uh you know uh dr strange love or you know, weird middle-aged Sean Connery chasing after Michelle Pfeiffer. I swear to you, in that scene where they finally make out, there's like a moment where Michelle's just like, ick. (laughs) All this said, I don't know. I think that it's not a bad movie. It's just like, like a lot of these ones we're talking in the middle of talking about right now. It just like, it sort of fails at evoking Le Carre in its own specific way, even though I think the cast is great and many of the performances are good and it has great access to the Soviet Union to shoot in. I'm going to give it a good pat as well. Yeah. I mean, it's from the director of uh, Mr. Baseball. How bad could it be? Oh yeah. Um, Fred Shepesey. Sounds good. Shepesey. I think this one is a good bad. I think like all the parts are there for it to be like a movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it, it doesn't really get going either on the romantic side with the, there's not a lot of chemistry between Michelle Pfeiffer running away from Sean Connery for an hour and a half. No, there's uh, not. And her character, and not there's a character other than being like, don't let anything bad happen to Katya. She's beautiful. Katya. Yeah. Katya. That's really the most we know about her is that her first name is definitely Katya <laughs> and not Alina. Oh my God. That's the big reveal. No, let's leap forward to 2001 and the Taylor of Panama. A tailor living in Panama huh? reluctantly becomes a spy for a British agent. Now, let me ask you this, Chance. Why would agent be capitalized? IMDb, what are you doing? You know how, like, Wikipedia sometimes, like, eats my fucking lunch by, like, how good its descriptions are? IMDb sometimes relapses pretty hard. Yeah, causes you to vomit your lunch. (laughs) Oh, spying on people with a capital agent? (laughs) Spying on capital P, people. (laughs) So this one, of course, stars Pierce Brosnan as spy who just came in from the cold, Osnard. Mid-Bond. Mid-Bond. That is the most outrageous... What kind of agent told him it was a good idea? <laughs> One of those lowercase agent, agents. Not, lowercase <laughs> agent. Lowercase T, at T talent agent. Uh, told him it was a good idea to play a, like a shitty spy while he was on contract to play the biggest, best spy. Andrew Osnard, welcome to Panama. Thank you, Ambassador. Not the Osnard got drummed out of Madrid. 
foreign minister's wife, wasn't it? For an agent down to his last chance, Panama is a land of opportunity. Boys back home are concerned to know that the world's biggest trade gates are going to fall into the wrong hands now that it's in the wrong hands. But here, what a good spy really needs... I'm opening up a little network, keeping an eye on the canal. So what's that got to do with me, Mr. Osnard? I'm just a tailor. He's a spy of his own. He's smart, great contacts, and no agenda. So who is this Andy Osnard? He's looking for information. It's a game. Let's have some fun. Are you seeing the president today, Dad? I am indeed, my son. You want to know something about the canal? There's something between you and my husband. I know it. And he's told you nothing. Welcome to Panama. Without hero. Yeah, so he's reassigned. He's he's sent to lose his mind the way Lima says to Panama to like see what's happening with that canal. But anyway, there's like a class of bureaucrats and uh, you know foreign agents that like hang out, ambassadors yeah. that hang out in Panama. This is what my uh, freshman political science professor called a kleptocracy, uh, government sure. based on stealing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, And that's definitely there. And they all sort of congregate in this very, you know, Rick's American Cafe kind of 80s nightclub. Right. Uh, And the way that Pierce Brosnan sort of ingratiates himself with the working class or the, you know, the ruling class of this society is by befriending their tailor, the guy who has access to all of them, played – Kind of brilliantly, I will say, by a wasted Jeffrey Rush, uh, who is incidentally not who he seems, but in fact, instead of being a Savile Row, you know, famous guy, heir to, you know, this business that allegedly existed in London, uh, he's actually just an ex con who figured out how to make suits uh, and needed a fresh start in Panama. Um, very Casablanca-esque feel to this one. Oh, yeah. The movie lit- gestures at it directly multiple times. Yeah. Um, what do you... Uh, let's start with that. Because I don't... I actually don't like the Jeffrey Rush performance. What do you like about it? I think it's totally not in line with any of the other performances in the movie. Uh, if that's how you grade good performances, uh, you've got me there. But I think it's like a sort of standalone con man trying to make something real in his life performance. I think his arc is like kind of nice and understated where he almost physically looks like a clown at some moments. Yeah. He's hunched uh, over. Which is, he's got these skinny arms. Right. And the fact too, that like, I mean, this isn't an acting thing, but I just love the, the fact that his, the people he dresses, are, the clothes don't actually fit them that well. No. They're just expensive fabrics, but it's not like well-cut suits. That's one of, one of the movie's better jokes is that like he's a terrible tailor. Right. Yeah, everybody in the movie is like – well, they, they're dressed like they're from 20 years earlier, really. And this – well, what could be more appropriate? One of the things that really works about this movie is the theme, and that's probably most credit to John Le Carre, which is that in a post-colonial, post-Cold War era – in order to keep the wheels churning of these, you know, terrible dinosauric government agencies that don't know how to do anything else, all you got to just just create a new freedom fighter, just create a new junta by lying about who the leader of it is and pass it off as intelligence. Like, um, 
the movie's maybe a little too like pleased with itself that it understands like this is like tailoring <laughs> but it thematically it really works which is that the taylor character harry the jeffrey rush character ple- keeps passing this like outsized crazy intelligence that is complete garbage but it has value because andy can then sell it back to his bosses who that can then sell it to the americans who are the big dogs in this in this fight um like the themes are strong um i just don't really like any of the performances personally oh yeah the brosnan one's terrible but well i think it's interesting too that on the look hooray scale this is the one where there's actually no central intelligence so to speak like everything is fabricated and even the reason that it's fabricated is kind of fabricated um whereas you know with the previous three there is like some central thing that's happening in this one nothing is happening which i think is like a tough thing to base a movie around it's it's like oceans 12 I will say, so John Borman, the director who made movies oh, like Deliverance, Deliverance, yes, and Exorcist 2 and Excalibur, um, and I think Hope and Glory in the 80s. Um, yes. A, a big name who was trending down at, at this time. Um, I think one of the things I want to give him credit for is that he captures and lays bare like a real kind of hideousness that is often implied or suggested through the manners of Licoré characters. Like the, the Andy Osner, the, the spy character played by Brosnan, is sort of a just grotesque figure who's like, <laughs> he's, he's very, um, um, you know, sexually forward and, and kind of naughty, and, but has, there's no seduction. This movie is a movie full of covetous characters who have no seduction to them at all. And I think Borman is very intentionally being like, look, if you just look at a Licoré book from this angle, you'll see very clearly that everyone's gross. And I give him a lot of credit for trying to do that. It's just that I don't think... The movie can't get out of its own way where it's... You're in Panama, but it doesn't feel like Panama. And even the scenes where you like look in the windows of shops and homes and hovels, it still feels like... I'm an outsider here who's making this up. It doesn't work that well. I like that you use the word naughty to describe Pierce Brosnan. Isn't it kind of naughty? He's just like, what about a farewell fuck? He's just like, oh, (laughs) God, (laughs) come on. Well, that's the question here is that does this movie, is it just like the Pierce Brosnan character that's naughty? Or do you think this movie potentially crosses a line to be unpalatable in 2020 yeah i think with the so jamie lee curtis plays uh harry's wife <laughs> she's the licoré girl she's the licoré girl and the, the she's i think one of the absolute worst examples because <laughs> um, she's she, i was okay i'm glad you said that because it's so funny that she has worse sexual politics than the 1965 look great girl well yeah and it's it's not it's not her fault it's it's the movie's fault for um, no it's the moviness the moviness the movie has a slickness to it you know that it's like obsessed with its own like referential slick like you were talking about with uh having so many references overt and otherwise to casablanca um but it thinks it's like kind of a movie about movie tropes 
And in the way that, I mean, writing at this point for Le Carre, like he was up against, I would imagine, a lot of things that were becoming familiar to his readers. Um, but the way it kind of manhandles them is like a little grotesque. That's a good way to put it. I mean, if you think back on the character of Nan, the Claire Bloom performance from Spy Who Came In From The Cold, it, look, if you want to write a character who's a woman who is idealistic and innocent and is the sixth character in the movie. Like, I guess that is what it is, but to have like a, a woman in her late thirties who says things like, Harry, my husband is my virtue. And then like the next moment, like if this movie is constantly having her, like have her blouse ripped off or like, you know, oh, yeah. be naked in her bed. And it's just like, it's, you can't you can't have both. You can't like put your thumb on the scale that hard and also yeah, I don't know. It's it is worse. And if and she is of course the most intelligent person like in the world that the movie creates. She should be. Like, she's a an accomplished diplomat. Right. You know, so she like should have more agency on screen than being like, Oh no, another scene where they bust in where my boobs are out. Exactly. And <laughs> The, and the great irony of this, I'll, I'll tip my hand, I do think this is the worst of the six, um, is uh, this is the one where Le Carre gets a screenwriting credit. Along with Andrew Davies, who wrote the Bridget Jones diary. And then let's throw Brendan Gleeson on the pile. Uh, this movie casts... Uh, I forgot about the brown face. Yeah, I've so I actually... He's he doesn't he's not like made up to have darker skin. He definitely is made up to <laughs> have darker skin. It's just the beard and a truly It's not. Fat. It's okay. the it's the shoe polish hair dye that he has on yeah. along with the literal tanning lotion that has been applied to pasty ass Brendan Gleeson, Irish person to look Panamanian and his portrayal of that person is pretty offensive. Yeah, the, ac- the accent is horrible. He's not even coming close. Because sometimes to it's it. Irish, sometimes it's Brendan Gleeson. I'd like to read the. I'd like to read the book. I mean, in the in the post Cold War era, Lecure kind of made it one of his things as a writer, where he would just like visit a country that had these English ties and had been colonialized throughout the twentieth century, and he would just like spend a lot of time there, and he would observe how the system still functioned. Um, which I think, you know, good on him for making that a, a project. But this movie doesn't feel embedded and observant and has zero cultural sensitivity to anything that feels authentically Panamanian at all. Um, yeah, and that feels gross as well. This is a bad, bad. Other than heralding the acting prowess of one Daniel Radcliffe. Um, yeah, baby Radcliffe is in this and he's like, Dad. Are we having pancakes? Dad, is that you? Are you the uh, Patronus? <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie's terrible. Um, pretty bad, bad, uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons. It is more entertaining than some of the ones that are coming up, but it's the worst of the six. I would say it's almost so bad, bad, that it's bad, good. Compared to, like, The Constant Gardener. <laughs> Let's go there now. 2005. A widower is determined to get to the bottom of a potentially explosive secret involving his wife's murder, big business, and corporate corruption. 
That makes it sound worse than it is, I think. It's just big pharma. Right. Take me to Africa with you. Tessa. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. How are you? How are you? We can't involve ourselves in their lives, Tess. There are millions of people. They all need help. You know me well enough to know that I'm not going to take no for an answer. Will you believe me if I tell you that that poor girl over there is being murdered? We know about your wife, Mr. Quill. Don't quite follow. For a diplomat, you're not a very good liar. Well, I haven't risen very high. Stop looking at me like that. I'm going to have a baby in the week. You're beautiful. I love you. I'm getting reports. A white woman found earlier this morning. Dead. You think it might be Tessa? This is also like a like a white people hanging out in a non-white place and making it worse. Yes. <laughs> kind of narrative. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, he's a he's an ambassador. Uh, Ray finds Justin Quayle looking a bit like Dan Quayle. I love his little like the hair, how it like goes over his. Does some good hair acting in this one. Sure, Rafe. Uh, he's a diplomat, and one day he's talking about the Iraq War, and this crazy person from the the stands shouts out you know opinions that differ from the official ambassador country britain policy about iraq in the early 2000s and lo it is his wife tessa rachel vice who's who won an academy award for this goddamn performance i want to be clear that tessa is not justin's wife at the time you're describing their meet cute yeah yeah that's their meet cute i'm sorry right no yeah yeah, um, I meant like low as in like in the big picture fate. Like he, that's how he met his wife. I mistook your low. Uh, and so they relocate on his next assignment to Kenya. Um, and while fucking Ray Fiennes is picking his nose or whatever, <laughs> Rachel Weiss uncovers this huge fucking big pharma scandal uh, that involves like piles of dead bodies. So this movie is interestingly set up if i can just launch in here for sure because much in the way you were talking about uh in the spy who came from the cold you're sort of distanced for distance from the character and what their level of access is this one you're s- close to a person who has a certain you know higher security clearance than your average citizen so you kind of can figure out what's going on but you're also kind of in the dark in the intelligence game between husband and wife and where Rafe finds believed the mind of his wife was like at the time of her death and then piecing that together which is kind of an interesting move for both Le Carre and movies like this uh, that doesn't quite I mean it lands definitely much more than the Russia house for sure between this this male and female character and the unspoken things in their relationship and how we all kind of use each other yada 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 um, but yeah this one's definitely you know out of the gate that it's like a serious film and mm-hmm. it's got some big ambitions yeah there's a couple things that make this one of the can I say like most adapted of the movies that we're talking about and one is how Fernando uh, Moreas makes movies um, director of, of City of God and Two Popes 
things are visually redacted from you in this movie. Like the oh, way yeah, they're like whitewashed quite literally. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you, you see a, you see a crime scene in handheld digital camera with just the tire of a tipped over Jeep with no inkling of how, you know, where's Tess's um, tragic demise in all this. I mean, there's a scene where Justin goes to identify Tess's body where the camera moves underneath the morgue slab to catch Danny Houston, the immoral diplomat, who's their quote unquote friend throwing up in the sink. Um, this is a leg- a level of uh, a visual ingenuity. Um, it, it, I guess it probably would have felt more novel in 2005 that like you haven't seen in these other movies. Um, yeah. And it's, it's also very strange. I mean, this is like Anthony Hopkins level, not being in a movie and getting a major award from it. True. Like there are not that many scenes. I mean, there's the meet cute and then like the, Hey, thanks for that great sex scene. Yeah. Uh, it was a gift. <laughs> That's a good line. There are some good moments here. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you see her like making a scene or like being sexy. And that's kind of the the two channels that she has. And then she's dead. And then it's thrust onto this guy who, again, an outsider in a country that the production is very much trying to be. You know, there's a certain Danny Boyle slumdog millionaire-ness to this movie. But it doesn't yet have the awareness of like, oh, maybe we should cast someone Kenyan in a major role and not have it be the guy who gets his dick cut off and shoved in his throat. But they're all like they're sort of spiraling white savior narratives, at least coming out of this one. There's like the Rachel Weisz trying to end this horrible practice that's having – you know, that's happening to these people – but I don't think the movie, A, spends enough time interrogating the the irony of their kind of – that right. they're dying of this one thing, but they're being tested on with something else. It just considers that to be a black and white issue, you know, whereas, like, these people do have reasons they're doing these heinous, like, you know, inhumane things. But they're maybe not monsters, you know. They're just – it doesn't look at the system as much as it looks at sort of the this is the moral thing to do here. Like even with, you know, what's his name? The head uh, dinosaur hunter from uh, Lost World. Uh, Pete Postlewaite. Yeah, Pete. Big Pete. Even he like is portrayed as like someone who gets it and has assimilated. But it's still like a fucking white guy who for years and years was taking advantage of – you know, these Kenyans and then just decided to live amongst them as if that were just a choice he could make. And it almost feels like, I don't know, it's lens for sort of the, the inhumanity of it all, like felt a little over the top too. like in a sort of, it's a movie about shameful colonialism, but it's not, not a colonialist enterprise itself. You know, in so much that, like, the film crew I was reading, like, set up, a like, a charitable fund after the wrapping of shooting there, which, like, sounds like a good thing on its face, but, like, why don't you just do legitimate business with these people and, like, pay them what they're due for using them as a backdrop in your movie? Mm, yeah, totally. Uh, you're right. That, that does smack of Slumdog Millionaire era. Uh, Hollywood movies for it's sure. Just, it's just Hollywood in the early 2000s. Like, what do you want? Frankly, one of the best performances in the movie 
not surprisingly, given who we're talking about, is from Donald Sumter, who plays Tim Donahue. He's the he's the British intelligence. He's the so-called friend or the or the spook, quote unquote, who's sort of like lingering on the edges of this movie. Like, what is this? What is this actual intelligence figure capable of? Um, and he, I think, actually does represent some real danger to Justin at certain points, and has I what for me is one of the best lines where they're like bantering at a dinner party. And they're like, Tim, Tim, what do you hear these days, you old friend? You you who is a purveyor of knowledge. And he goes, oh, I don't know. Only God knows everything. And he works for Mossad. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, Liquor Aid been holding on to that one for a while. That's a good one. Yeah, it's a well-written script. Um, you know, I get a little tired of like the four, like what maybe you saw as a virtue of the sort of proto-digital photography here. Uh, I kind of saw as intentionally obscure you know yeah i well I, I don't disagree with you i think i shouted out the best moments at other times it just feels like an excuse to be unfocused and then the moments where it really does focus in are like sometimes the most shamefully oscar baity like when ray finds like goes to tessa's old house and just like cries at the window and then starts rage gardening like that was oh, yeah cringeworthy that was like where the yeah. movie is like enough of all this shaky cam like we gotta win an oscar yeah and it really tried to make the scene where rafe goes to like the aids clinic with the big line of the kenyans and he like tries to stir up the pot and ruffle a few feathers and they're like is immediately like police showing up and even the fucking guys who are giving out the instruction or giving out the medications are like in on the elaborate scheme. I just didn't love its take on like goon culture, mm. you know, cause what look is all about is the goons don't have this ideology. That's not why they're going along with it. It's that they have mortgage payments and you're paying them just enough to like do the thing they like don't really want to do. And yeah. like this one to me, because trying to be so focused on like Kenyan, the caste system there, uh, didn't it, it was not as interested in the caste system that exists in how quickly people move on the intelligence side mm-hmm. or the ambassadorship diplomat side. Uh, that seemed to be lacking, which then of course doesn't justify the tension between danny houston and rafe fines yeah you know i didn't he was no Dieter. you know it's icky if if danny houston fucks your wife it's not like kind of hot well and it's just another one of these movies too where the the sort of the hapless protagonist i don't i don't understand his conflict like if if justin hears from tessa that Nairobi citizens are being poisoned by a drug company. What's can we do a little more to establish his incentive to look the other way? Like he looks right. the other way. Why? Because he's very polite and likes to garden. Um, it's not, he can't be bothered with these things. Like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. Cause one of the main ironies or what's supposed to be one of the main ironies of the movie is the question that, he has that Ray finds has about whether or not she just married him. So she could come to Africa. Mm. You know, everyone kind of assumes that she, that he, that she's duping him and having an affair with this doctor who turns out to be gay. How wacky. That seems Um, awful. She goes to her friend, uh, Gita Pearson, I think 
who or Justin does after Tessa's dead, like meets up with Gita and Gita like pulls a photo out of her purse. He's like, nope, Arnold and his boyfriend right here. Come He's on. He's the one I've circled in red. Yeah. <laughs> be real. Be real. Be real. Indeed. You know what they, this movie also needs to be real about what? is that when Rachel Weiss dies, the newscaster says 24 year old activist right. dies. Rachel Weisz is 35 when this movie was made. Like, why not just say 31? Like, whatever you want it to be. But why 24 just, like, doesn't feel... I think they did whatever they wanted it to be. (laughs) You're right. I don't know. This conversation has been overwhelmingly negative, and I do think there are a lot of things this movie doesn't do well. Also, just the thing at the end where it's like... These cattle thieves, these Sudanese cattle thieves are going to show up with machine guns and just kill all these other Sudanese. It's just like such a blood diamond Hollywood. Hmm. Maybe I like this. don't like this movie as much as I thought. What are you going to give it? I think it's a bad, bad. Like, I think people baited to this movie when it came out. But I think that this movie is not really that good. If anything, it's like... It thinks it's Syriana, but it may be like Crash. Do we think Syriana is very good? Syriana may be bad too. I uh, just haven't watched that one since I saw it in theaters and was riveted. This just screams out for that. Who's that guitar player who like scored every one of these fucking movies and has that that thing that's like. I'll, I'll I'll find it for you. But it like screams out to have like a, a meaningful Spanish guitar you know, playing through this whole thing, then you convinced me. I can't, I can't come up with enough good things to say about it. And we didn't even talk about how, like really honestly has a, my dead partner, like with a white background coming back to me in hallucinations. Has one of those movies ever really touched my heart? Not really. (laughs) Um, you know, like every Christopher Nolan scene of like, ah, hello, my dead wife, who will move the plot forward? This movie has a little bit of that. Um, and those that hardly ever really does much for me. I'm coming with you. Bad, bad. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. I'm glad that we have reappraised this, you know. It's a 7.4 on IMDb. Are we on to the last one? Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy? Let's do it. Let me say at the front of this 2011 movie that both of us were like, eh, We'd both seen it once. We didn't get it. I think watching... We watched it together, which was nice. But also watching all of these movies, I feel like with every failure that I saw, I felt like what this movie was pulling off had a higher and higher degree of difficulty. Oh, yeah. I agree with you. Um, Definitely in retrospect, too. But yeah, I agree that I was, I had the memory of seeing this movie with my dad in theaters and him loving it and me being totally confounded by it. Like, I didn't know what happened at the end, Um, which was so bizarre because watching this movie, I like didn't have any issue following it this time. It's pretty straightforward. Oh, I don't know about that. I think you have to pay attention. There's a certain language in John le Carré movies where in the part where it's just like a car is driving to a house and there's like somebody talking in a voiceover where you're you like tune that out because you're like, I'll pay attention when we get to the house. Thank you. <laughs> like that's the right. part when where they you have to when they in. hand feed me the uh, <laughs> montage where you, she, where you see Sean Connery whispering into the ear of I need to make contact to leave my country. Uh 
This movie doesn't have that. But this is a movie that rewards your locking in and trying to figure out who the men at the table at the circus are. And this movie really cashes in on using the term the circus. There's a mole Um, right at the top of the circus, my friend. What's the synopsis here? In the bleak days of the Cold War, espionage veteran George Smiley is forced from semi-retirement to uncover a Soviet agent within MI6. There is a mole right at the top of British intelligence. He's been there for years. For 25 years, we've been the only thing standing between Moscow and the Third World War. I'm retired. You're outside the family. You're well placed to look into this for us now. I'll do my utmost. I know that it is one of these men. All I want from you is one code name Tinker. Taylor. Soldier. Spy. If you blink, you might misunderstand the premise. Which is that like George Smiley has been forced out of the circus um, because of this mission that went bad in Budapest, where uh, Mark Classic. Strong. Classic. Yeah, I've been. We've all been there. Mark Strong playing uh, Jim Perdue is seemingly killed while trying to bring over uh, an Eastern asset in a just complete botch job outside this beautiful cafe. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's kind of a cool scene too because, oh, it's like, incredibly staged. You realize that literally everybody in this what you thought was a well staged like European cafe scene was actually like in on this meeting. Well, this is one of the things this movie does really well. You talk about cinematizing Le Carre is that it keeps showing you the same five scenes over and over and over and being like, "You're missing something. Look closer." Right. When I show it to you the fourth time. Um, yeah, in a way that's not super like hokey flashbacky, but just like come right, on. Right. So it does have flashbacks, but they're not hokey. No, it's like it's it's not because they're not really for like, pl- or maybe they are plot, but very sneakily so. It's just like you're 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 blocking things out of your memories. Surely there was more there, viewer. Go back, go back, and it's. I mean, even like when you see the the six men at the table at the circus with Toby Jones and Kieran Hines and John Hurt, you're like, take another look at that table. Who, Colin Firth, like, what else do you see? It's really interesting that you mentioned the, the construction of the the room itself, which is, I mean, you'd only get this joke if you were watching all the Ray adaptations uh, in one short time. But it's funny that juxtaposed with Alec Lemus's monologue about how espionage isn't like a bunch of like popes sitting in a room mm. discussing ad nauseum like the morality around doing things. But Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy kind of makes the argument that it is uh, where you have these like five or six guys just sort of sitting around bickering and like that's how the world's dirty work is done. And I think that's kind of – you know, that almost is the comedy side, the dark comedy of, especially this one. Well, the irony of what you just pointed out, and I agree with you, but it's like Lemus doesn't know. Lemus has never been in this room. The Lemus right, of exactly. this movie is Tom Hardy, who plays this agent in the field in Istanbul, um, 
who man when i saw this trailer in 2011 of like him in like the back of a convertible driving through istanbul i was like this is going to be a way cooler movie than it ended up being for me but he just kind of has this alec lemus detour where he happens upon some intelligence about uh the mole basically not wanting his intelligence and how suspicious that is because i think it's maybe a good thing to have had like the sort of gruesome image of John Hurt at the, right at the beginning to sort of maybe not inform you tonally what this movie's capable of. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of always feel like that car chase or that shootout is coming in the next scene. Right. And that it really doesn't is like kind of, you know, a magic trick that this one pulls off. Absolutely. Without spoiling Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I think Colin Firth is kind of brilliant in this movie um, because you keep looking at the men at the table. And I just want to give so much credit to Kieran Hines, who just has one of the best faces in movies. Like I just watched there will be blood and he's like Daniel Plainview's like assistant. He has like, I don't know, 20 lines. And the whole time you're like, tell me who this guy is and how he got here. Like every time I see Kieran Hines, it's like, how did he get here? Who is this guy? And Roy Bland is so scary. And you're like, I know it's him. I know it's him. And then you've got, uh, Toby Jones and David Jenchik, who play both these sort of like diminutive, creepy little guys. And you're like, they're both very suspicious. And Firth is the one where you're like, well, he's a charmer. He's the only, he's the one in the office making jokes. He's the flirt. He's the only one who seems to have a life in his eyes and has a relationship with like the Mark Strong character. And, you know, movie passions make you really want him not to be the mole. Yeah. I don't know, though. I thought the scene where Easter House breaks on the tarmac. That uh, scene's unbelievable. We didn't talk about this when we watched it, but they had to fucking land a plane behind the actors. They sure did. Yeah. Incredible. Though, I don't know. Like, there's something about a person crying at that moment that feels like it's not of the circus. Well, he's not fit to lead the circus. Only Smiley can. You're, you're quite right. Thank you. Let me ask you this. Is this movie maybe, we talked about this when we were watching it, but maybe overpacked with people? Maybe there's too much talent? I mean, Oldman and Firth, and then you didn't even talk about Cumberbatch. And, oh, uh, right. Yeah, when you get to the young guys and the wigs. like Oh, by the wigs. We didn't <laughs> even talk about the wigs. For the, the fact that those parts are played by Hardy and Cumberbatch and like Stephen Graham, it's like it doesn't matter. Like those parts are not big enough or good enough to be played by people of that talent. Right. Yeah. I'm with and you I guess on I that. thought the Gwillem character, at least from the book of uh, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, was like a peer to Smiley. But in this one, he's like Seems a protege. Like a mentee, yeah. Yeah. Kind of love that Cumberbatch, though. But who thought it was a good idea to be like, oh, let's give Tom Hardy the wig that Ashton Kutcher has from that 70s show. It's a funny, I don't really know what the value is of talking about it, but it appeared in my notes like four times, so I will. All these 60s and 70s spy movies, it's really funny to see the post-war generation and the way they dress and the stiffness of their upper lips kind of conflict with like, who is this new generation of spies with the hair at their shoulders, you know? Like, it does feel like a 
oh, you'll never understand the good old days when we were just killing Germans. Um, well, they really often talk when, when the characters overlap with World War II, they're always sort of looking back and being like, that was fun intelligence because like we knew who the enemy was and like what they were doing wrong. Yeah. In this one, we're like not only perpetuating, you know, the uh, war machine here and the government contracts that go along with it. Uh, but we're also sort of fighting Ourselves. something that could potentially hurt us. Yeah. Maybe. Or maybe we're just creating it. It's a stretch to say this movie on its face is very watchable. But I am prompted to give it a good good because I think it is a high quality adaptation that's just like it's 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 pulling off stuff that I've we've seen fail four other times in different ways. Um and I really kind of am curious to go back. Like it's a movie of stolen glances. You're trying to figure out what's going on between Colin Firth and Mark Strong, too. Are they are they buddies? Are they more than that? Oh, yeah, Mark Strong. We didn't even talk about that. Mark Strong is, I think, really good in this movie. He's also in a very silly wig. but um, Is he, though? I think he's great. Is like the, oh, now I'm a teacher at a private boarding school. Like, is he? He is a teacher. Is, is that like your interacting with that boy? Like, is that really? I think he's good. Is that important? Did you see how he I fell down when he got shot? I liked it. You thought he was dead. I thought he was dead, too. That's acting. Instead, he was driving around a mini Winnie. You're trying to find work. <laughs> how dare you? Um, Pulled right up to a boarding school. They're like, we're hiring. Take the sign out of the window. Man. He could be, he's the gym teacher now. I'm Tell this fat boy how to be a man. Incredible. Um I think this movie is a good good and I would like to watch it again. And also John Le Carre, I shouldn't call him that, David Cornwell is in it. He's a guest at that Christmas party, which made you, Noah, ask, is Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy a Christmas movie? <laughs> uh, just because I was being a dick. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is a good good. It's maybe a little... It's one of those movies where, like you said, the trailer really misleads like what oh the movie God, is. God, it looks like hot shit in the trailer. Uh, yeah, it really looks like there's going to be some some gunplay and some cars and maybe a boat. Uh, but the boat's just process. Yeah, it looks like Tom Hardy's going to like make out with every living resident of Istanbul and... Uh, you know, yeah. there's going to be like, he's of- having his own little Istanbul <laughs> house over here. He's yeah. got his Katya that he's trying to save. Katya. And what Oldman is doing is really like weird. And I think kind of yeah. difficult of like playing a man with no emotion, except a marital pain that he cannot acknowledge that is his only blind spot. And he knows that he can't acknowledge it. Um, it's pretty. That dude just being cucked at every turn. Smiley, yeah. Poor guy. Even when he's Dobbs, um, and imagine <laughs> he has to uncover the Russian mole and then turn around and write the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Yeah, with no help from Orson Welles, from what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the prevailing narrative. No wonder he's taking fucking tranquilizers. That's hilarious. All right, Noah. Six movies Sir, down. Do you think were we built for it? I after watching all these movies and rereading a book, I don't think that I'm cut out for. I just I think I like pe- telling people the truth too much. Oh, like, I don't well, think I'm I... duplicitous. But 
keep, keep me in mind for like non you know like espionage things i'm very good at little missions like if you need me to like return something at home depot like i'm your guy that's hilarious. but not like under a false identity we need to do like a, a few good men in stripes like you belong like at a private level of a army corps yeah i'm just a mercenary go over when it there comes to retail <laughs> i'll stand over don't there. think about how the nature of knowledge is ignorance itself go over by that barrack Wow. Amazing that your conclusion here is that you're too honest for this category. Don't know what it says about me that I loved every second of it. Thank you one and all for continuing to listen to Be Real in 2021. Um, Great to watch all these Le Carre movies. R.I.P. to the master. Yes. A life, a life well lived. Most of it spent on a cliff in like as far away from London as he could get, he just like lived on a cliff and thought about geopolitics, which is, I think not a bad life. No, it's, it sounds like my dream. Sure. Certainly. <laughs> or at least movies about geopolitics. Certainly more I'll think pre- about those. perceptive than ours. All right, man. See you soon. Here's a short passage between George Smiley and his loyal Lieutenant Peter Gwillem. Gwillem has finally discovered him, and Smiley looks at him for a while. I believe you came to accuse me of something, Peter. Am I right? And while it's still my turn to hesitate, was it for the things we did, would you say? Or why we did them at all, he acquired in the kindliest of tones. <laughs>